you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. So check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. And so, <clears throat> today there's going to be, like last week, I'm going to kind of hit this big narrative, this big sweeping story of the scripture, and I think it's going to be necessary for us to understand as best we can what we mean by honor. Honor doesn't just have one simple definition in Scripture. And as a result, I need to help bring us through the entirety of Scripture in explaining that. So, we did, where I do want you to kind of hang out, are two places. In Romans 12, and also Psalm 8. Psalm 8, Romans 12. So just put a hand in both places. And while you're doing that, I just want to mention on the front end, that a week from today, next Sunday, we are going to actually take some time to honor Pastor Jory and the Leaper family. Pastor Jory um, has been on sabbatical for some time. He's been serving faithfully as an elder pastor since 2015. So for a long time, not on staff, a lay elder. And so he's just been taking some time seeking the Lord, seeking what it is that the Lord wants him to do. And he has decided to um, come back from the elder table to spend time just being with his wife, being with his children, and just being a part of Redeemer Church as a member, and not as, a, as an elder. Um, but we are, we are sad to see him go in that way, but at the same time, it's understandable. And so we're going to take time next week uh, to honor him and his family uh, for serving us in that way. So make sure you guys are here to join in that, in that celebration. So I was listening to um, Voice of the Martyrs radio, a podcast done back in 2019, and it was entitled, Honor and Shame in the Muslim World. And they interviewed an author, <clears throat> excuse me, by the name of Audrey Frank, and she has written the book called Covered Glory, The Face of honor, shame in the Muslim world. And she mentioned how missiologists, people who study missions, if you will, have agreed upon that there are three general ways that we, as human beings, have responded to the fall in the garden or to sin entering the world. In general, those three ways are shame, fear, and guilt. Shame, Fear and guilt. You see that as Adam and Eve sin. You begin to see those three aspects. Shame, fear, and guilt. And because of those sorts of responses, you then begin to see the global impact of that and how many cultures develop around all of those sorts of negative responses and some of them heavily focused. And so with shame, you begin to see a honor-shame culture. With fear, you begin to see cultures that are in fear of power. You begin to see cultures that are shaped around guilt, or this guilt-innocence, or right-wrong culture. Generally speaking, we think of this in Eastern and Western contexts. Western culture and context are usually the guilt and innocence sort of culture, and Eastern contexts and cultures are usually the honor-shame sort of culture. Our culture 
heavily leans on right and wrong, guilt and innocence. Culturally speaking, we are okay if someone wants to act disgracefully or become a fool because when they do, they are a reflection of themselves. They're not a reflection of me or my community or my family. It is no foreign thing to hear in our world, in our culture, like, my hands are clean of this. You know, why are you looking at me? I didn't do anything wrong. I am presumed innocent. You're the one who's guilty. But in an honor-shame culture, there's an opposite sort of effect or impact. They see life, relationships, culture in terms of how we either bring honor or shame upon not only the individual, the community, or even the nation. There is a general culture of hospitality so as to bring honor onto the community. And there's a desperation to avoid anything that could bring shame. If you are in a community where someone does something disgraceful, you don't respond, well, I'm just innocent here. I didn't do anything wrong. But rather, in an honor-shame culture, when someone else does something that is disgraceful or shameful, you respond as though you were personally offended. That there's personal involvement. Offense. Because that act of disgrace or shame becomes a reflection of shame or disgrace upon you, your family, your community. And therefore, it's necessary to purge that shame from the culture. And that's generally speaking where you see, especially in Muslim contexts, the extreme purging of those who bring shame to a culture. But who among us has ever felt the weight of disgraceful decisions being made? Even if you were the innocent party. How many of us ever feel honor or shame based on who's in the Oval Office? The President's always an easy target in illustrations, right? I've never seen anyone feel really either way. And why? Because we can respond, well, I didn't vote for that person. That's on the President. That's not on me. But that doesn't happen so much in an honor-shame sort of culture or environment. I was on a Zoom call a couple months ago with fellow brothers in Acts 29 listening to a Nigerian theologian and author, Dr. Elizabeth Maburu. She wrote the book African Hermeneutics. She also has a degree from Southeastern Seminary. She's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. But she's talking about how There's generally this Western or Eastern sort of culture or hermeneutic. That means hermeneutic, meaning the way we read, study, interpret, apply the Scripture of God. And how Westerners come at it with this innocence or guilt perspective. And Easterners will come at it with this honor-shame perspective. And so when we read a story, based on whatever your cultural influence, you will begin to gravitate or lean in interpreting and understanding the text from that perspective. At one point, she mentioned the honor-shame culture is so strong in where she lives that she can tell stories of brothers and sisters in Christ in one village feeling the shame or disgrace of brothers and sisters in Christ in another village, and then in return, retaliating by locking these brothers and sisters up in their own church building and catching it on fire. Because of the sort of disgrace and shame that was brought upon them. 
That can be a hard thing or a shocking thing for any of us to hear. But dare I say, we may be equally intense when it comes to guilt and innocence or right and wrong. Think about it. When a Christian, a pastor, a church, a Christian institution is wrong in some way, even if it's just one time, there is no hesitation to call them out, to write blogs or report them to major news outlets, to do whatever is necessary to make their lives miserable, causing their name, reputation, ministry to be blanketed over with shame and eventually discredited. We feel so wronged so deeply that we will heap overwhelming amounts of disgrace to the point where Christian and brothers and sisters lose their jobs, their families sink into depression, their children become more and more rebellious towards God, they develop heightened anxiety, loneliness. Many of them are tempted, if not follow through, with suicide. You don't hear of a lot of Easterners, Easterner pastors committing suicide. You do of Westerners. And while the, the reason is vast, there's, there is at least one reason. A lot of it has to do with the public shaming as a result of them being wrong. They should have known better than being wrong. And so we need to out them. One killing themselves may keep our hands clean from murder. Look, don't look at me. I didn't kill him. I'm innocent of this. But it is no less murderous, no less a murderous or evil heart than in the honor-shame culture, locking brothers and sisters up and burning them alive. You might think, well, Paul outed false teachers and people who did wrong. Not the same thing. Paul did out them. But he didn't do it with the, with the goal of destroying people, their reputation, their livelihood, their names, their character, in the name of being right and protecting the church. He never did that. We do that. Our objective is often sinful. We think we're rightly motivated, and sometimes we are, but then out of fear of being seen that we could possibly be wrong, we take it to the next level to make sure that that other person is seen wrong and not us. I didn't want to name drop, but let me give one example of this. I love John MacArthur. I listen to John MacArthur all the time. I read John MacArthur things. I think John MacArthur has the whitest teeth on the planet. And I don't understand it. I don't think he's wrong about Beth Moore and her theology about preaching. I think he's right that <clears throat> she's not correct. But he was absolutely dead wrong to publicly shame her and tell her to go home. Think of all the memes all the jokes, all the presumptions many made about her as a result. A woman loved by so many overnight became wrong on something and therefore hated or disgraced by so many. The shame and disgrace is just like a, a constant wave beating on the shore over and over again. 
She can never come up for breath anymore. Her entire life is on the internet. You cannot escape it. And how many times we have dug in our heels on account of being right. Even if it means insulting the intelligence or the convictions or the livelihoods of others. We are so afraid of being wrong or found guilty that we will dig in as deep as we can. But there's a better way to live. I know that's a heavy introduction, right? But there's a better way to live. As a side note, I have discovered there's a heavy amount of caffeine in tea. I never drink tea. I drank tea last night, and I couldn't go to bed until after one in the morning. Because I was like, yes! (laughs) I'm feeling it right now. We can have a better way of living. A life of honor that reflects the glory and the grace of God. And is received by the world and our church family as genuine love and genuine care. So today we focus on biblical honor. Psalm 8 and Romans 12 kind of are the launch pad, if you will, the starting point for how we really define honor. In Psalm 8, we really begin to see honor is who you are. And in Romans 12, practically speaking, honor is what you do. It's both a noun and a verb. Who you are and what you do. In Psalm 8, honor talks about man as being created by God. Meaning he's adorned by God as reflective of His majesty. Think about when you had Christmas. Maybe you had a Christmas tree, maybe you didn't. Regardless, you know what a Christmas tree is and you know what ornaments are. The idea of God making man in His image, He puts man out on display, hanging him as an ornament, an adornment of His majesty, of His beauty, of His grace. And who you are is beautiful and instills awe and ascribes high value to what is really majestic. In other words, the way that God has made us is reflective of His beauty. Reflective of the awe and the majesty of God. But then we get into, the, into Romans 12, and honor isn't so much about who you are, but it is about what you do. And in short, it is giving one another the preference. Making much of others. And so I, be, I hope to kind of help tease out that understanding of honor as who it is that you are and what it is that you do sweeping through the big meta-narrative or big story of the Bible and honor in it. And so I begin. We begin to see honor in creation. If you were to go to Genesis chapter 1, you would see this sort of honor. And we did mention it last week. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. For the next six days, God created. First, He had created the heavens and the heavenly beings, and we see in the first couple verses, and then we see Him creating the sun. We see Him creating plants, animals, the expanse of the skies, the waters, 
And then last but not least, His most beautiful creation, He creates man. And so let me reread what I read last week in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image and in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. And so in terms of created order, God created the heavens. He created the heavenly beings. He created everything under the earth. And then on the last day, He created man. And then on the seventh day, God rested from all that He has done. And we talked about that last week. And that rest still stands. God completed what He was doing and He rested. And all of redemptive history from Genesis to the coming of Christ, God is working from a posture, a position of rest. He is never weary. He never is tired. He does the work and it is life-giving. But we are made in His image and likeness. And in the most simple of ways, and maybe oversimplifying what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God, is this. To love God and love neighbor. That's the idea behind image and likeness. Is that we have the ability to now relate to God and to relate to other people. That's what it means in the image and likeness of God. But the purpose is more than just relating and us saying, God, I love you, and neighbor, I love you. But it is more like us being a mirror. We are a reflection. Paul speaks of that in 2 Corinthians. We are a mirror. As a mirror, God is projecting His image onto you and me. He's projecting His image onto man. And we either take that image projected to us and turn it back up to Him in worship or out to others in love, or we take that image that has been projected onto us and we turn it back to ourself in self-worship, self-love. You see the difference? It's like holding a mirror and angling it just right so that not everything is about you but going back up to God and going out to neighbor. This is what it means to be made in the image and the likeness of God. And then of course, we know the story in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They ate from the tree that they were told not to eat. And so therefore, in that moment in Genesis 3, the Imago Dei, the image of God, was marred with sin. Now, just like rest was marred when sin entered in, it did not mean that rest was gone, so it is the same with the Imago Dei. Just because the image of God was marred in the garden doesn't mean that that image suddenly disappears. It is broken. And so God casts us out of the garden with the hopes of having us to return, to enter into His rest, but also to return with a perfected, restored, or redeemed image. Just to kick things off. From the womb 
all the way to the tomb, all humans are to be held as honorable image bearers of God. And I say this because we'll get into this in a few weeks when we deal with the sanctity of life and and abortion and those matters. It is really easy for us to talk about humans in the womb as image bearers. They were knit together you know, in, in their mother's womb by God. But if that child then is birthed, comes into the world and grows up and becomes one who is a big fan of abortion and, and doing those things, it's like that person in our brain has lost their identity or image as being made in God's likeness. Does that make sense? It's like the child in the womb is made in God's image but the, the adult sinner, we begin to lose that for them. The Scripture speaks of, from the womb all the way to the tomb, we are image bearers of God. Either image bearers that are still marred by sin, clouded over by sin, or perfected in Christ. But regardless, the image doesn't go away. And so don't mistake the message today. I'm not going to come in today and say, hey, we need to just be nice to everybody. Okay, That's not what I'm getting at. God is indignant towards sin and death. He's not turning a blind eye to it. He doesn't think that it's just okay. He's not going to tolerate it. If His creation refuses to enter into His graces, then they will live in an eternity of shame, an eternity of guilt, eternity of fear, punishment it's important to know though that's not how it was supposed to be and so i want us to consider a starting point do not take lightly that others are made in god's image no matter if they're babies or adults before you speak about or speak to someone or even consider typing words for all the world to see, or start casting some sort of judgment, we must start from the presupposition that the person we are interacting with was made in the image and the likeness of God with the purpose, the divine purpose, to reflect His beauty. Not our beauty. His beauty. His majesty. And so the person that you're about to interact with was designed by God, for God, not you, not me. So tread lightly and with reverence and establish that the person in front of you has honored, bestowed upon them just by their sheer existence. That should slow all of us down. Not to jump so quick to us defending our rightness. And so we see honor has been established in creation and then it is marred. But that, that marring honor is still crowned. Psalm chapter 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes, And infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, 
the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? You, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Here it is. And crowned him with glory and honor. You gave him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The Psalms leading up to Psalm chapter 8. If you were to read 5-7, through seven, are really sorrowful psalms. David just begging and pleading with God to overcome his enemies. And really in Psalm chapter 7, there's this picture of God saying He feels indignation every day, that He is wetting His sword and readying His bow for the enemy. And so there's this heaviness to the psalms. And when we get to Psalm chapter 8, it's as though it turns a corner for the one who's burdened and weighed down with the things of life or with sorrow or with enemies. God comes about and says, yet I am mindful of you. He is mindful of His creation. The psalmist David takes us back to the garden. He takes us back to before the garden. He takes us back to creation. This is what he talks about in verses 4-6. through six. In all of these things, God, in everything that's going on, yet, You considered us. You made us a little lower than the angels. James Montgomery Boyce highlights this reality. The author doesn't say, just a little above the beast. No, a little lower than the angels. Meaning there is some value and honor here that is above the things of creation. And this is a matter of created order, not a matter of significance. Humanity was made after the heavens were made. He was made after all the creation of things on the earth, but it does not mean that He was the least of all things. Man is uniquely placed not as a spiritless beast, nor as a bodiless spirit or angel, but as a being with both body and spirit made in the image of God. The beasts were not made this way. The heavenly beings were not made this way. Man has a unique purpose and design that is unlike anything else in all creation. And that image comes with a crown. Crowned with glory and honor. That idea of crown being wrapped in with. Covered in with glory and honor. And so humans were made, were placed with high status with blessing, with glory, meaning with distinction, unlike anything else, with honor that is adornment and majesty. Everything about Adam and Eve in that garden reflected the beauty of God in heaven. And Adam and Eve were to have dominion. 
And this psalmist takes us back to that reality that there is that man was created to have dominion, to have rule over all creation. And this idea of crown means that Adam was a king. He was a ruler. He was a type of mediator between what was below him and what was above him. And his rule and his authority and his dominion wasn't that he is the king, but he rules and has authority and dominion in creation as a king type. One who turns back all of his work, all of his rest, all of his authority, everything back up to God in worship and praise. And so the, the psalmist, David, reminds the readers of this. This is post-garden. The fall has already happened. Sin has already plagued all of relationships, all of humanity. And yet the psalmist is reminding the readers of this. God is reminding us of these things. Basically saying, do not be discouraged. He's not saying, hey, just by way of reminder, I just want to let you know that you guys messed this all up. Remember how I made you crowned with glory and honor and you just jacked it all up? That's not what God is doing. This is more of a positive spin in that God is saying, I am mindful of you. I have created you. You still hold this image. But the work is not done yet. You see, Adam was supposed to have right dominion and rule. All things under his feet. He was not supposed to sin, but yet he sinned. And as a result, everything that he was designed to do, he completely failed at. He completely bombed. But God is saying, this still stands. This image, just like rest, still stands. And there is going to be a time where all things will be back under the feet of Adam, if you will. Are you grieved right now? Are you full of sorrow right now? I can't stop reading the news about what is going on in Ukraine. It isn't, it's just insane. Maybe some of you are hurting. You're frustrated. Maybe what's happening in Ukraine just seems like item number 20 on the list of things going on in your life for you to even worry about. The psalms of your life, the song of your life could be really heavy right now for you. But I want to let you know and remind you that God has rewritten for you a new psalm. He has no desire to destroy you and start all over. He has a desire to recreate you. To make you new. To write in you a new psalm. Promising you that the crown of glory and honor has not been lost. God is going to restore it. He has not turned a blind eye to the hurt and the pain in your life, to the sorrow, to the name-calling, to the disgrace, to the shame that has come your way. He's not turned a blind eye to it. He is in full attention to it, and He's reminding you and me that He made you. He was mindful of you. He loves you. He cares for you. 
So stop for a moment and think about who it is that you are. The world may say that you're nothing, that you're nobody, but he's saying that you are royalty, that you're an image bearer, that you are wearing a crown that has been given to you by the Lord of hosts. You are beholding in that crown all glory, a glory that is not your own, an honor that is not your own, and you're doing it as an ornament for the world to see the greatness of God. You're not just a puppet on display as bait. No, God is displaying you, showing you off, because by showing you off, He is showing His glory off to the world. How could that not brighten your day? (laughs) How could that not turn your psalms of sorrow into laughter and joy. Look, church, you cannot love your neighbor as yourself until you first understand to love yourself. Now, that's a hard thing to say in our culture because we're saying, well, we are depraved, sinful beings and we are not to love ourselves. We are not God. We shouldn't idol ourselves. I agree with you. But what I'm getting at here is what the Scripture is talking about is loving neighbor as yourself. That means that you love the God who made you. You love what God has made you to be. You didn't crown yourself with honor and glory. God crowned you with honor and glory. You didn't make yourself in the image and likeness of God. God made you in the image and likeness of God. So to not like yourself, to hate yourself, to not love yourself, is to hate who God is and what God has done. You understand the difference? We don't need to be resenting God. So this is going to be critical if we are going to be people that honor one another as God has designed us to do. Trying to get our theology in order here. Trying to get us a right understanding. But here's the kicker. We cannot rightly love or honor without the problem of our marred image getting in the way We can't rightly love and honor without Jesus fixing that problem. You understand? And this is where the Gospel comes swooping in. And if you were to jump to Hebrews chapter 2, you see honor is restored with a perfect crown. I'm not going to read all of verses 5-18, through but I'm going to read some of them. And this is where the author of Hebrews takes what we just read in Psalm 8 and shows us how it is perfected, redeemed in Jesus Christ. So verse 9, it says, But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that He, in verse 10, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Down to verse 17. 
Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. The New Testament takes us into a new creation. Jesus comes and redeems what was lost in the garden. He fulfills what was lacking in Adam, what was lacking in us, he becomes, as Paul says, the second Adam. The first Adam came and he brought sin and death and all died. But the second Adam brought life and resurrection. And so this is the point here. And that the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus comes he, this is the, the story of a new creation that He comes as the better Adam. The second Adam. What the first Adam could not do, Jesus can. And so in His life, He becomes the perfect image bearer. The perfect human. Made lower than the angels. Again, speaking of creation order. In this sense, it verifies that Jesus was made completely human just as the first Adam. We're talking about God, Jesus, in the flesh. The one through whom all things were created and made. Nothing was made without Him. It all passed through Him. And yet the picture here is that He came down and was made. The unmade was made. The uncreated was created for the purpose of restoring an image. And He lived perfectly. He was crowned with honor and glory and how He loved the Father. How He loved His neighbors. He perfected honor and glory as a human. But then He takes that perfection and takes it to the marred, broken, image bearer and sinner. The radiant, full glory of God comes down and perfects our honor and our glory on our behalf and then imputes it to us. And so in His death, Jesus died just like the first Adam died. But the difference is Jesus did not sin. And unlike the first Adam, Jesus put the curse of sin that has marred our honor and glory, and He put it to death. The first Adam could not do that. He did this, as Hebrews says, by becoming a propitiation for us. A word we often don't use in our English vocabulary. But it means He removed the wrath of God by offering Himself as a gift. You see the beauty in this? God, we always talk about, well, God could have just started all over. He could have just ended it and made a new creation. Yes, He could have, but that wasn't the way that He was planning to work. Instead, God was going to redeem the image that was broken. Instead of starting all over, He was going to perfect what was then broken. And that gift was pleasing to the Father. And in exchange, 
all the wrath of God that was meant for Adam, that was meant for Eve, that was meant for the raging nations pressing around David, that was meant for you and me, was poured out onto Jesus, the perfect, sinless man. And astonishingly, it was with joy set before Him that He endured the cross. Jesus didn't begrudgingly do this. He willingly, lovingly did this. Joyfully did this. It shows you how much He still loves His image bearers. And in His resurrection, the marred crown of glory and honor was put to death And the new created crown of glory and honor came to life in Jesus. And so then by faith, we receive now this newly made crown of glory and honor because of what Christ has done. And as a result, we now live under His rule. The rule that Adam couldn't rightly fulfill in Genesis, Jesus perfectly does now. Perfect dominion. Perfect rule. Perfect kingship. Perfect mediation. And so He rules as King. As mediator between God and man. In a way that Adam could not do. He does it Himself. In a way that Moses could not do. In a way that Melchizedek could not do. In in all these ways that humanity could not do, Jesus does. And because Jesus became like us and shares with us His honor, and His glory, He then is therefore never ashamed of us. You hear that? This is the heart of God. He could have left us to die. He could have started all over. But because He's not ashamed of us, because He loves us, He came down in order to redeem us, to bring us back to Himself. And He loved us so much that He would offer Himself as the gift. And He would take on the punishment on our behalf so that the image bearers could rightly reflect God again. And with this, with His rule, with His dominion, with His kingship, with His authority, Jesus promises, yeah, there was a first Adam and a second But there will not be a third. There's no need for a third, Adam. The work I've accomplished is done. It's finished. And it's in the process of being completed. And I'm not going to mess it up. It's impossible to be messed up. It's perfected. And all that perfection is now yours. And one day, I will put to death, death. Church, you are still crowned with honor and glory. And through Jesus, your crown of honor and glory will never be marred again. Yes, I understand we are still sinners. We live in the already, but not yet. But you are already sanctified, Hebrews tells us. You are perfectly sanctified in Him. Perfectly glorified in Him. God has, through Jesus made you the greatest, most spectacular ornament, shining His glory and majesty 
the honor and glory of Jesus is now your honor and glory. That is who you are. The world around you, or the world around, apart from Jesus, still has honor and glory, but it's dim. It's marred. It's overshadowed by death and sin. Is the honor and glory that you have, does it outshine the marred honor and glory that resides around you? Lost people who live in your neighborhood or in your workplace, whatever it is, can they out-honor and glory you? Do they see, do, does their glory and honor outshine yours? Is your reflective mirror turning back to self? Or is it turning out to God and to others? And Jesus remains. His honor, His glory remains upon you because He continually helps you. He's not leaving you. He's understanding that you're not going to be perfect in all of this. But He's going to help you. You and I are never dishonored by Jesus. Ever. He never casts upon us shame for His own glory. He always helps us. He shows that by giving us His Holy Spirit. He's always mediating for us. He's always advocating for us. He's always ministering to us. Because you are bound to Jesus by His blood, there is no shame or disgrace you can do that will push Him away. You're going to mess up. Let's just say it honestly. I'm not saying you should. We need to live like Christ. We need to be holy. But when you mess it up, understand, Jesus isn't, isn't going to go, yeah, now I'm done. It's just too ugly for me. Rather, when you mess up, Jesus counters with a wave of grace, mercy, kindness, love, reminding you, just like in Psalm 8, remember who you are. I am mindful of you. You often forget who you are. And you often forget who I am. But let me remind you of who I am and who you are because of what I've done for you. And it will come endless waves of grace. And He reminds us all of the crown that encircles our head. He's not ashamed to call us brother. It is necessary that you and I therefore are not ashamed to call one another brother and sister. We cannot. Think about it. If Jesus is not ashamed of you, then why would you be ashamed of anyone else? Are you worried about what other people think? That you won't be seen as cool or as strong or as wonderful? Who cares what other people think? Jesus is not ashamed of you. And you are an embarrassment to the kingdom. You're an embarrassment to the throne. You and I mess it up left and right. But He's not ashamed of us. He continues to cover us in His grace and love. And so, in the same way then, we are to bestow that same honor and glory upon one another. And so lastly here, we see... Honor crowned as the way of life. 
I'm going to kind of buzz through a few texts in the New Testament. But we begin, Ephesians 2.6 tells us that we have been raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places. I remind you of this because the honor and glory of Jesus is united with Him. When John reminds us in his Gospel that we are to abide in Christ and Christ abides in us, he's talking about a perfect union with Christ. Which means the glory and the honor of Christ is our honor and glory. The righteousness of Christ is our righteousness. And so where Jesus is seated in the heavenlies, we are therefore also seated with Him. And that is the only way that we can be seated with Him and still be alive in that His righteousness is now ours. His glory is now ours. His honor is now ours. We couldn't be seated with Him if we came with our own glory and honor. You can't re-enter into the garden guarded by heavily flaming swords and cherubim by saying, I come to re-enter with my own honor and glory. Not going to happen. Jesus imputes to us, credits to us, ascribes to us this honor, this glory. And because we have this honor and glory, we then, in Romans 12, 9, are to let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is where honor and glory get its legs for us. We have talked heavily about who we are as being full of honor and glory, but now the what do we do? And so from a genuine motivation of love, just like God, because God is love and God created and did all things from love, we are to outdo one another in showing honor to outdo one another isn't like this competition like oh you're gonna do that well i'm gonna honor you this way right that could be fun to watch maybe a good show or whatever but that's not the idea of what paul is getting at it's going before one another and showing honor that's what he's saying the idea is going before to show the way to someone else it's almost like a forerunner It's going before to show the way to someone else. Think of it like a processional in a wedding. The the guests are already seated, and then the wedding party starts to make its entrance. Coming before all, so that the attention could ultimately be drawn to the coming bride. And when the crowd sees the processional, they are anticipating the bride, not the bridal party. There's a genuine love that leads a processional in order to draw the attention to the adorned beauty and majesty of God in others. That's what Paul is saying. Look, everybody. It's drawing attention not to yourself, but drawing your attention to others. And not just others for the sake of seeing others, but for the sake of seeing Christ 
in them the hope of glory. And the way a believer outdoes one another is not by competition, but by humbly leading others to see that stunning beauty of Christ reflected in His spotless bride. Look at this ornament, church. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, and, and this ornament over here, look how it reflects God's glory and beauty. And we all in the church are those ornaments. And this is an honor that is to also be exercised before the saints. Done before the sight of all. You don't hide this adornment. You don't put it away. You put it on display. As it was designed to do. That's why in verse 17 of Romans 12 it says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. To live in the brokenness of this evil world in such a way that the saints of God remain of favorable value. What the saints do reflects ultimately the King of glory. God is telling the church to slow down. To not resort to shame. Not resort to disgrace. To not posture up in defensiveness so that it keeps you from feeling guilt but to act like the honorable King that you serve. You are seated and crowned with glory and honor in the heavenly places. Remember that. Never forget that the honor you have is the honor that God has from eternity. Understand, you, are, you and I are not the full radiant glory of God. We are not Jesus. We are not the Savior. But we have that glory upon us. We have that honor upon us. And you and I are to see others and to acknowledge that we see them and that we see the honor and glory of God in them. Whether we're talking to a lost person whose image is marred by sin or, by, or talking to a saint who is perfected in Christ, our objective is to constantly make much of God in others. That's what it's meaning to honor and to outdo them. When we're instructed to honor our wives, to honor our husbands, our masters, slaves, authorities, emperors in the Bible, yes, all of those very offensive titles and positions of authority in our culture, that is because we are designed to reflect the honor of Christ. The same honor that Christ has shown us when we were taking His glory and turning it back and reflecting upon ourselves saying, I'm the King. I'm the ruler. I'm the one who deserves glory. But God has taken our arms down. He said, no, that's not the way it works. And so we must plead. We must pray. This is why we're told in the New Testament, pray for your enemy. They are losing sight of who they were made to be. We have to show them. And so we need to, for one another, show honor. We are to be truly taken back by how God has crowned your brothers and sisters with the glory of Christ. We need to see one another in such a way that it causes us to smile. 
to laugh, to truly be worshipful of God. When we see each other, we will see each other mess up and go back to the old habits of the marred image. But through the grace and the help of God, we will see those brothers and sisters repent and come around. And when they do, we will see that newly created glory and honor come through them. And how then they begin to pray. Read Scripture. Serve one another. Use their gifts, their talents, their resources for the sake of of Christ for the sake of His church. And in those moments especially, we need to draw attention to Christ working in them. So we need to intentionally move towards one another and say, I see what God is doing in you and it's beautiful. Thank you for making much of God in your talents, in your resources. Thank you for making much of God in how you speak to me. Thank you for making much of God and how you speak to others. We need to be intentional because that's how we will live for all eternity. And it won't be a drag. It won't be a bummer. It'll be life-giving honor. Consider the impact that would have. Not only on the individual, but also on the church family. And not only on the church family, but upon the one who sits on the throne. Think about that for a moment. Your words either cast shame or honor back onto King Jesus. How you speak about, how you speak to, how you interact with one another is either casting honor back onto the King or shame. And let me remind you, He will not take that lightly. What you do matters, not just for yourself. It's not just about you. It's about everybody. Think about this. When we honor one another, we help cover a multitude of sins in our church family. Not with guilt, not with shame, not with fear, but with grace and mercy. Moving people from disgrace to freedom and glory. I know I'm at an hour. I hate that I've preached an hour. Some of you don't care. But let me finalize this out of Revelation 21. Jesus is going to bring into perfect completion His dominion. Psalm 8 is messianic because it refers to the coming of Christ, but also to the completion of His work. All things will be placed under His feet. The first Adam could not do that, but the second Adam, He can And so Revelation 21 says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is the perfect fulfillment of dominion and rule. And I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon or to shine, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. 
Now listen to this. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. There's a glory and an honor that has been bestowed upon us. And as we enter into the new Jerusalem, that honor and glory that we have now will come with us because the honor and the glory we have now is perfected already in Christ. It's time we rightly hold the mirror of our image in the right reflection of honor and glory to God and one another. Don't leave this place without recalling you have been crowned with honor and glory in creation. That your honor, though marred by sin, still remains and has been perfected with radiant glory of the Son who sits on the throne. And therefore, it is with great joy and eagerness that we live a crowned life full of glory and honor that stuns the lost and causes the church to run from guilt to grace, from fear of power to comfort in God's supreme rule, and from the constant darkness of shame and disgrace to the ever-glorious lifting freedom given in the honor of Christ. Amen.